0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I was in school, in high school. He says, what are you going to do? And I said, I want to be a cop. You need to go to school. So I went to school. I went to ABAC. You know, back then, looking back on it, I wanted to be like Mike. I've always wanted to tell Mike thank you face to face. He, he didn't realize what he did. He didn't realize that he was making a difference in somebody, but he did. And, you know, all these years later, almost 30 years later, I retire. I owe a 36 year career to him because he, he kept me straight. Uh, he gave me, uh, the desire to go and be what I wanted to do, and I appreciate it. I'm uh, Shane Edmiston, I'm the police chief for the city of Douglas Police Department. I policed for 25 and a half years with the city of Swanee. The city limits for Swanee is about a mile from where the homicide occurred. And growing up in law enforcement in Gwinnett, I always heard the stories of the DNA on the rain jacket. It was her DNA. Somebody positively ID'd Mike as the one standing beside the vehicle. Mike had money that matched the serial numbers to the money that she had. Over the years, the things I had heard, I was convinced Mike did this. I was convinced Mike did this. But she never really heard about him being at the fire station. You never heard that the DNA was never tested. You never heard that they didn't pick him out of a phone lineup as the one being on the scene. They picked him, They actually picked him out of a phone lineup as somebody passing them on the on Peachtree Industrial Boulevard. And I'd always heard, well, just Buford Precinct was just so corrupt that you know it all started falling apart, and they didn't know what to do. And it's hard to believe as a law enforcement officer that you've got an entire precinct, especially Gwinnett County Police Department, which is a very, very professional police department, or at least they are these days, or while I was involved in policing Gwinnett, um, how it could be like that. Uh, You hear about things in Chicago and New York about corrupt cops, but you don't want to believe that it was happening in Gwinnett County PD. A lot of things that I have been told over the years as being a law enforcement officer in Gwinnett, it's like, that doesn't seem right. Not what I've been told over the years. And I always question in the back of my mind, Mike wouldn't do something like this. Mike was a community relations officer. Yes, he was big and bad and people were scared of him because he was so big and he didn't take any crap off anybody. But everybody in Buford, most of the people in Buford, even the firefighters in Buford liked Mike, still do. I've talked to several. I've called him and said, hey, was Mike in the fire department that night? Yeah, he was standing right there when he got the call that he was dispatched to. You just look back on things, and you think about the things that you were told over the years, and, and you realize that a lot of the information that you believed all those years is simply
0: not true. When Shane Edmiston met Michael Chapel, he says he was a wayward youth, lacking any real direction in his life. In early April, I visited him at his office nearly 200 miles southeast of Atlanta. We sat across from each other, his large, polished wooden desk between us. His office walls, full of plaques, awards, and honors of various shapes and sizes, showcasing a lifetime of service in law enforcement, a career that he says he owes to Michael Chapel.
1: I mailed him a letter and told him thank you uh, for everything that he had, you know, I don't think he realized what he did, but he did, he did make a difference in my life, and uh The letter that he wrote me, you could tell he hadn't changed. He's still Mike. And if he didn't do this, he deserves for people to know.
0: I'm Sean Kupe. from Imperative Entertainment. This is In the Land of Lies. At this point, I've spoken to numerous people on both sides of the fence concerning Michael Chappell. People who are either unwavering in their belief that he is innocent or unrelenting in their belief that he is guilty. The multitude of requests to interview both John Laddie and Jack Burnett were denied, or ignored altogether. But you've heard one name come up over and over again in this series. He was the district attorney who convicted Chapel back in 1995. And if you'll remember, Henry said he wouldn't be happy that this podcast was coming out. That man, Danny Porter.
2: When you talk about highlights of career, I mean, I don't tend to think of them as things you brag about. But I, you know, they they're stuck in my memory. This was a big case because, I mean, the way it worked is, is sort of sort of levels of nausea is, you know, when the first witness said I saw somebody there with a blue light behind that brown car, you just go, oh shit. You know, there's a, there may be a cop involved in this. The first thing we did is, of course, nobody wants to say, oh, God, it's one of ours. They told me when they planned on bringing him in to question him, and their intent was pretty much no matter what he said, they were going to arrest him. They felt like they had enough information to charge him on the night they brought him in, so he wasn't going to leave that police station a, a free man. I'm convinced that we convicted the right guy. I'm convinced that it was all non-tainted evidence, and
0: most of the assertions in the book are fantasy. The investigation of Emma Jean Thompson's murder was initially built around the theft of money. That's unarguably where it all started. So the logical place to begin looking for any suspect's connection to the murder was in their bank account. And that's where they zeroed in on Chapel initially. All of his financial records were analyzed, his bills, his spending habits, and his personal and business bank statements. The focus was on cash spent and deposited in the week following the murder. As Porter tells me, that's where they got their first real break.
2: There was the circumstances surrounding him spending $100 bills because we knew that the money was in $100 bills. And there were the circumstances of what he spent the money on, and and spending it, and every one of those witnesses was clear that it was hundred dollar bills.
0: Here, Porter's referring to T-shirts that Chapel bought for his gym and a car wash, where the attendant first stated to police that he paid her with a twenty dollar bill, but changed that testimony at trial, alleging Chapel paid with a one hundred dollar bill. Either way, the notion was that Chapel was all of the sudden flashing cash around. Porter argued that he was in financial straits prior to the murder, though, and needed money badly enough to kill for it. I pressed Chapel on this.
3: No, no, not at all. You know, we we were just like everybody else. We uh, we were hard working and made our bills. There wasn't no, that's one thing really there's no financial dire strait there, but they tried to make it out to me be because you had to know me, I just didn't, I didn't care about money. All, we had food on the table and the lights was on and everything was paid. I'm happy as can be. Let me give you an illustration here. I didn't even carry a wallet, okay? But no, we, we were not under no dire financial. We were just like any other young couple, just with the kids.
0: But that doesn't really answer the question of where did the extra money come from?
3: I was trying to orchestrate a... Uh, some officers to come work a part-time job a traffic job that i was running and he was paying cash on the barrel and then you go in there and you read I, I ended up having to work the, the most of the part time job myself and i completely forgot about that influx of cash in the, in the defense part of uh, my trial so you're looking at probably two three maybe four hundred dollars of forgotten money that was available to me at the time just that i earned that one week
0: Chappell says he had several part-time gigs like this on the side at any given time, and had also recently taken a small cash loan from a friend to purchase the Iron World t-shirts. He also benefited financially from his massive size.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, Uh, one of my uh, bodyguard gigs is uh, Jack.
0: Um,
3: What's his last name?
0: Jack Dudley is the name that escaped Mike here.
3: Anyway, he was uh, he had gotten in trouble with a uh, DUI trouble, and he had money, but he was he liked to party, but he needed a bodyguard driver, and I was into the uh, fledgling executive protection business, and so I just became his driver at the standard rate of twenty-five dollars an hour, and he was a businessman, and he uh, he was telling me how to do my business, you know, make it better, and, and advertise and whatnot, and he had loaned me fifteen hundred dollars in February of 1993, just a month or so before this. And he testified at trial, and it was supposed to be for advertising, and I had ordered those t-shirts then.
0: Not only did Porter's team hire a Canadian-based forensic accountant, but a comprehensive internal investigation at Gwinnett County Police was also performed by one Lieutenant M.D. Powell. This analysis, which became known as the Powell Report, was created from a database so extensive that it contained information on Chapel dating back over a decade. For the trial though, the Powell Report concentrated on the weeks surrounding the murder. It contained dates and times of vehicle registration checks Chapel ran while on duty, phone records detailing who he called or received calls from at home, the gym, and the police precinct. It showed detailed financial records and his MDT or mobile data transfer traffic, which was like an early version of text messaging between police officers. But the cash deposits made the week following the murder were crucial for investigators. They needed to show an influx of cash to cement their theory that he had stolen Emma Jean Thompson's money and was out spending it. Chapel's bank accounts did show six separate cash deposits over a six day period that week totaling nearly $2,700. Though only about $500 more than the previous week's deposits, the fact that it was largely in cash is what interested investigators. I think that
2: put us over the line in terms of probable cause. Then there was the, the circumstances surrounding him spending $100 bills because we knew that the money was in $100 bills. And there were the circumstances of what he spent the money on and and spending it. And every one of those witnesses was clear that it was $100 bills. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about...
3: Business was actually picking up for the spring rush. I had a, uh, a wellness program that I was initiating where I was gonna sell blocks of memberships to the local industries for a uh, cut rate for their employees. And that was really taking off.
0: Also noted in the Powell report were several MDT transmissions alerting other officers that the Testron had arrived and that he'd already sold nearly 200 bottles at Ironworld. Investigators thought Chapel was selling steroids, but it was later learned that Testron was a legal herbal supplement meant to boost testosterone. Chapel's blood work also showed no steroids in his system. Regarding his finances, the report states that, quote, a pattern of this type of activity is shown throughout the life of both accounts. So is this really the substantial evidence Mr. Porter claims it is? Could all of the side gigs, the Testron sales, and the small loan explain Chapel's additional cash influx? And what about the phone call that Chapel allegedly made to Imogene Thompson, asking her to meet him the night of the murder to compare serial numbers on money he had found?
4: Lieutenant Powell had all of the phone records. Had all of the phone records that were pulled by the district attorney's office, and they reviewed Imogene Thompson's home, her work, Mike Chapel's home, his gym, the precinct. Neither one of them had cell phones. Neither one of them had pagers. So their main communications, all the records were pulled. And those phone calls did not happen that day.
0: Regardless of the phone records, Danny Porter believes that Chapel did arrange for a meeting with the victim. And he relies heavily on the statements made by Emma Jean's friends. Frankly,
2: I believed the two friends of Imogene that he did arrange for a meeting that night on her, on her, she didn't know exactly when, but on her way to work. And that he did have this supposed plan to recover her money and that all she had to do was bring the money she had and, and then give it to him and then he would get all of her money back. I, I, I believe those witnesses that she did talk to those people and,
0: and tell them that. In all, the Powell report leaves us with one very important takeaway. Quote Based on the information that we have, there is nothing unusual about Officer Chapel's actions on the fifteenth of April to indicate anything was about to happen. Unfortunately for Mike Chapel, the entire Powell report was thrown out on a technicality brought forth by the DA's office and could not be used in court by the defense.
4: Powell had the copies of the originals that he had from the get-go that he used to create his report. But Georgia back in that time had a this obscure original records rule. And based on that, Porter motioned to have the Powell report thrown out. The technicality is that Powell used copies, Xerox copies of the original records. And Porter, who had the original records, could not locate them for the for the court and therefore the original records rule was invoked and no power report
0: while mr porter and i didn't discuss the power report specifically he tells me that it's not just one small detail or another of the case that convicted chapel you have to look at the much larger picture i think
2: when you look at the whole case it all came together once you once you started to put the little pieces together, and in fact, that's how I described it to the jury: is that as you put the pieces together of beginning with his dealings of, with Imogene Thompson and how he handled that theft call, and I mean the the fact that none of it was documented, none of it, all this running the boo and all that bullshit that he talks about. Um, I mean, cause nobody talks like that. I mean, I know law enforcement professional talks the way Mike Chappell does, I mean.
0: When search warrants were executed in the early days of the investigation, police searched Chappell's gym, home, precinct lockers, and his patrol car. In his patrol car was found a partially filled out burglary report for Imogene Thompson, his now unaccounted for intel files, and several evidentiary items which would prove pivotal in the case.
5: Four $100 bills tucked inside a ledger in Chapel's patrol car. The serial numbers showed the bills came from People's Bank, the victim's bank, a month before the murder, about the time Imogene Thompson withdrew her inheritance money. But Chapel also did business at that bank. Coincidence?
2: Could be. It could be. I mean, but I, I don't think it's coincidence when you when you take the whole picture or when
0: you when you put it all together. Just as in that TV special profiling the case, Danny Porter had a lot to tell me about that money.
2: So we were able to go back to the People's Bank, which is where the evidence had shown she had withdrawn the bills, and we weren't able to identify those bills except as part of a shipment of one hundred dollar bills that had been delivered by the Federal Reserve to the People's Bank. We didn't find out that those four bills had been delivered to Emma Jean Thompson. We we found out that she had gone in, closed the account, asked for the for the fourteen thousand and hundred dollar bills, and they counted them out and gave them to her. And they by the Timing of it they had to be part of the shipment that had been delivered just recently before that.
0: Porter makes a strong argument about the cash that Emogene Thompson had withdrawn and how that connected to Chapel. Again, I press Chapel on this.
3: Oh yeah. That's one of my that's one of my top round favorite things from the trial. We all we all have uh, what my sergeant used to call bad money. That when Mama makes when Mama gets mad at you, you gotta have money to get out of the house. And my my mad money was uh, I kept in the back of my uh, folding tablet, uh, a little notepad that I had in my briefcase. I know what I had in there because I was saving up. It was uh, it was remember it was early spring and uh, turkey season was was coming up, and I was wanting to buy a new shotgun. I was and in that little stash I had oh maybe 320s, uh, a couple of checks made out to me from people at the gym, memberships. I had a couple of traveler's checks. It totaled out maybe 300 or close to $300. When I was arrested, of course they went through that thing. You know, that's what you're looking for, anything and everything. I believe they found that potpourri of uh, currency back there. And then uh, for two and a half years, it remains silent until, imagine the coincidence here. In May of uh, 1995, just before trial, when my defense team is at police headquarters, where all this has been in their custody all these years, while they're looking at this small amount of physical evidence, lo and behold, they find four pristine, Chris $100 bills, and the potpourri money is gone. Those four $100 bills they came from, and and you can credit the late Pam Holcomb, she tracked them, the four $100 bills through serial numbers. She tracked them to three different mints across the country where they were manufactured. Somehow, these four $100 bills managed to come from point of origin. The routes they made to end up in that briefcase without a single smudge or print or anything on them words, they were sterile, okay? And that's and, and that's impossible, that's physically impossible. No prints, no nothing.
0: Unlike the other evidence found in his car, these bills were not discovered until shortly before the trial in 1995, nearly two and a half years after the murder. But is Chapel being completely truthful with me here? Well, in the trial, an expert testified that, quote, there were no latent fingerprints present so no tests could be done. To Mike's point, how could police allege, as they did, that he had ever handled that money? Or that Emma Jean Thompson had, for that matter? And if they'd been in regular circulation, how could there be no fingerprints at all?
3: There's an explanation for that, too. There's a system used by local law enforcement in those days that uh, when you're making a purchase, undercover purchase, you can take a... a chemical called methyl ethyl ketone. Uh, it's called MEK, and it's a de-oil or degreaser for metal. You could wipe down cover bills, like, I don't know, let's say four $100 bills on a stack of hundreds. And once they're sterile and then contacted by the good guys and handed to the bad guys and then found on the bad guys, there should be, what, two sets of prints on there, the good guys and the bad guys. And, again, I'm just speculating, but I think their arrogance was they didn't count on... Nobody's press been on there. They never traced those $100 bills to me or to Ms. Thompson.
0: So what's the truth here? While the prosecution argued that the $400 bills found in Chapel's car were part of a shipment from the Federal Reserve that was thought to eventually be part of the withdrawal Emma Jean Thompson made when she took the $14,000 out of the bank in cash, but Chapel argues that not only did he bank at the same bank as Emma Jean, standing to reason that he could have ended up with cash from the same shipment. None of the money could be positively traced to either of them because there were no fingerprints on the bills. Next, I asked Danny Porter about the gun found in Chapel's car, a machine gun not registered to Chapel, with the serial number intentionally removed, in the trunk of his police car. Yeah.
2: It was a fully automatic M16. The M16 is the military rifle that was issued, and the serial number had been removed, ground off of it to the extent that we even sent it to the ATF lab and couldn't raise the serial number. But it was clearly a military weapon. It was not a sporting round. And he had about 158 rounds of ammunition, and he also had components to a silencer. So that indicated to us that it had been somehow taken and stolen from the military or a military armory. But because we were never able to raise even part of the serial number, we didn't know where it came from. And that's why he wasn't charged with
3: it. Oh, well, what I got to say is uh, all I can say it now, it was uh, my father-in-law's, my late father-in-law. I basically took it away from him because he, he, he wasn't supposed to have it there was nothing more sinister than that that right there yeah it was a confiscated it was a confiscated weapon it was just something as simple as that and the delicacy of uh, being family you know we're gonna be turned in it just this just happened just a week before all this went down so it was um it was no it was just some timing
0: the M-16 clearly didn't match the weapon that was used to kill Emma Jean Thompson, but was used at trial to negatively reflect on Chapel's character. Why would he keep the M-16 and have components to make a silencer?
2: He had to know, particularly if he's the super-duper investigator that was characterized in the book, that even possessing it was not only a state offense, it was a federal offense. And he couldn't just he couldn't just let his father in law slide on it if he was that much of a cop. Turning it into the evidence room to have it destroyed is not a viable solution for
0: him. During the trial, the evidence continued to stack up against Chapel. At least it must have kept the jurors guessing, is this man guilty? But it was the two final pieces of evidence that truly sealed Michael Chappell's fate. First, the raincoat containing high-velocity blood spatter from the victim. We've heard a lot about this. It's considered one of the key pieces of evidence used to convict Chappell to life in prison. But Chappell says there was also the possibility of the cross-contamination of dried blood flakes on the raincoat originating at the GBI crime lab.
3: First off, it never should have been used after that fiasco there. It never should have been used in any of I've seen the photographs. You can actually see flakes of her blood on the table.
0: But let's forget about the possibility of cross-contamination for a second. There were several very small drops of blood on the right front area of the raincoat. While the serology report states the drops were, quote, possible high-velocity blood spatter, and testing was done to positively identify the blood as human, no DNA testing was performed to conclusively show that it was Imogene Thompson's blood.
3: I keep saying the raincoat will not have uh, her blood on it because it was with me on the night and I wasn't there. So I've been screaming for the raincoat to be tested all these years and then denied, took it through the DNA motions, which, which, which is the mechanism designed to do just this. And uh Porter has fought me viciously to keep it out of the court, even going as far as lying to the Georgia Supreme Court numerous times about it, we had already asked for it to be tested and we had not. He lied to the trial court. I'm, I'm not just being angry. I'm, he, he lied. He literally lied.
0: But why would the prosecution not demand the blood be tested for DNA in the first place to cement their case? And why would a GBI crime lab technician have conducted an evidence review so poorly and sloppily, as Chapel's defense team alleged?
2: I mean, I didn't find out about the blood spatter until Kelly Fight was looking at it down at the crime lab and he said, you know, there's blood spatter all over uh, the right arm and right chest of this. And I I thought, Well, that's kind of cool. But then the DNA people came over and said we don't think that there's enough here to do an RFLP DNA analysis on it. At best, it would be 50-50. So I had to make a decision that every trial has, lawyer has to make decisions, and I made the decision that, in my opinion, the, the raincoat made a better, more persuasive argument pinned up on a board while Brian Frist pointed out the blood spatter, then it would be all cut to pieces with no result.
0: Even several of the jurors found this information confusing and concerning, as discussed in a Dateline special on the Chapel trial from the late 90s.
5: Some felt the defense had raised valid points about a sloppy police investigation. For example, why wasn't the blood on Chapel's raincoat ever tested to see if it was the victim's? It left a doubt in our minds, even though they may have not been able to get any kind of decent testing from it. At least they would have tried.
0: When discussing the physical evidence with Mike Chappell on a phone call from prison, we spoke not only about the minuscule amount of unidentified human blood found on his raincoat, but his concerns for the lack of more of Emma Jean's blood.
3: The driver's side door where supposedly the outside shooter would have been, i.e. me, was pristine. There was no blood on it, no contamination on the photographs, no word on the roof, on the, on the window, the partially raised window. No. Nothing, but on the passenger side, you see what, what appears to be cast off, like not spray, but just where a body was just flopped and it casted off a little bit. Your, of course, your raincoat, if, if a shooter was wearing a raincoat, you would expect to find extensive back blasts To tell the truth without being too gory. You, know, you gotta look at the situation. Today though, I still, again, that's been part of my uh, request for biological preservation on this evidence.
0: Chappell's defense argued that if he'd been the shooter, there should have been much more blood present on the raincoat, given the close proximity of the shooter to the victim. And while the drops of blood on the ground outside of Emma Jean's car on either side are perplexing, the drops of blood inside of the locked passenger door jam have never been explained.
4: There was noticeably not as much blood spatter as you would expect from two close contact bullet wounds. There was a little bit of blood spatter on the windshield. There was no backblast toward the driver's door. There was a little bit of, and they didn't call it high velocity blood spatter on the passenger door. And oddly, once you opened the passenger door. There were blood drops in the door jam of the closed and locked passenger door. There was a lot of blood pooled on the, you know, the center console and the passenger seat, which you would kind of expect from the down angle of her head. So there was blood that, you know, drained there, pulled to the back seat, and there was a little pool of blood in the back seat. But again, there was a surprising lack of blood spatter throughout the rest of the vehicle.
0: These observations, along with the fact that Imogene Thompson's seatbelt was tucked underneath of her arm, as opposed to over her shoulder, as one would expect, leads to the question, could she have been shot elsewhere and later placed in the vehicle? Or could the shooter have been inside the car with her? But assuming she was in fact shot while inside her car, How do you explain the placement of the blood drops on the raincoat? Those drops were concentrated on the right front portion of the coat near the armpit area in a small triangular shape. But the driver's side window was still raised halfway, which theoretically should have prevented at least some of the backblast from exiting the car. And furthermore, there was no blood on the raincoat sleeve inside the car door or window. The raincoat was also ballistically tested for gunshot residue, and the test was negative. As Chapel's trial unfolded in front of a national audience, the evidence against him mounted. One final damning piece of evidence was presented. Emma Jean Thompson's blood was found inside Chapel's patrol car. This time, DNA testing confirmed it was Emma Jean's blood.
2: key place, and, and the seat was put into evidence. The jury was allowed to examine it. There had been a patch cut out of the upholstery, and the key place that it was found was on the armrest. Like, when you folded the
0: armrest up, it was on the inside towards the seat. So how could Chapel explain the victim's blood in his car? There's no speculation here. It's undeniable, irrefutable hard evidence. What could he possibly have to say that could justify this?
3: Those 93 Crown Vicks were uh, small units, and uh, those of us, those uh, those of us normal-sized people, we had a hard time fitting in there. And I, I would like for you to see the. Uh, the physical evidence that they took photographs of the inside of that car, one of them uh, is the photograph of the inside uh, where it would be the driver's side, the armrest, the condition of the fabric is pristine like it's just off the showroom floor, floor. That was because it was always kept in the upright position. All the cops in the world will tell you because they know the same thing, that uh, if you're a right-handed shooter, the grip of that weapon will rub the upholstery, a hole in the upholstery. Every spare unit in the fleet, every fleet in the United States has a hole on that side right there from where the, the grip was rubbed, rubbed and rubbed. And also, look at the photographs of the inside of the uh, patrol car they've taken. You can see where, uh, because of that luminol spray they put in there, it actually outlined my nightstick, my PR24 nightstick that I kept crammed beside the car seat and the upraised uh, armrest. It actually got an outline of it.
0: While he sarcastically refers to himself as us normal-sized people, Mike tells me that he always kept his center armrest in the up position because he didn't comfortably fit into the car with it down due to his large size. He asked several times for the armrest to be removed altogether from the car because it prevented easy access to his service weapon on his right hip and the police computer. Chapel's argument here is that the location of the trace amount of blood detected was on the top side of the armrest, which, when in the upright position, would face towards the rear seats. Danny Porter agrees that the armrest must have been in the down position.
2: It had to be that the, the armrest was down when the, when the blood was smeared onto the armrest, and it was a minuscule sample, which caused problems in the analysis.
0: Marianne White, the CSI tech who collected the blood sample, did testify to this at trial, and she stated that the armrest was in the down position when she processed the vehicle. On April 24th, 1993, she used luminol to check the interior of the car for trace amounts of blood. Luminol is a chemical that exhibits blue chemiluminescence when mixed with an oxidizing agent, like the iron found in hemoglobin. Essentially, it glows when it comes into contact with blood. In this initial luminol sweep, no blood or DNA was found in the car. The night before Chapel's pre-trial hearing just one week after his arrest, the car was sprayed with luminol a second time at the request of the prosecution. This time, 40 nanograms of blood was found. Now, a nanogram is extremely small. One nanogram is equivalent to one billionth of one gram. Now, they may have just missed it the first time, but Chapel claims that the minuscule amount of Emma Jean Thompson's blood was planted on the armrest. And Chapel isn't the only person who feels the blood may have been planted in the car.
5: For six consecutive days, I observed Michael Chapel's car sitting outside the very place behind the building, which had razor wire and a fence around it that had to have a special key or card to get in, where other people, employees, parked their cars, their personal cars or, you know, police cars or whatever. They parked them there. Mike was sitting out there ready for anybody to touch.
0: Completely unsecured.
5: Unsecured. No completely. And I, with my own two eyes, observed it for six days consecutively.
0: Jenny Foxworth, the nurse who cared for Chapel while he was in jail, awaiting his trial, would often pick up her young daughter from school, which was across the street from the Gwinnett County Police Department. She, too, found it odd that Chapel's car remained in an unsecured area, given the hype surrounding the case and the importance of the vehicle as evidence. On one particular day, she arrived several minutes early to pick her daughter up from school.
5: So I just pulled into the Gwinnett County Police Department and parked my car right next to his. I watched about four or five police cars and police officers drive right by me, so much close to me that I could reach my arm out and have touched them, their car, and go and put themselves in that fence, lock their car up, and I guess go in the back door. And I stayed there purposefully for probably 20 minutes or so. Not one time did anyone say to me, hey, can I help you? Hey, what are you doing? Don't touch that car. No one spoke to me.
0: And did you did you touch the car?
5: Did I touch the car? Oh, you definitely dang sure I did. My handprints are all over that little thing. I purposefully, because it had like a little mist on it, a little rainy, I took my finger of my right hand, my index finger, and I drew it. what I first did was I went to all four doors playing out in the daytime, police car, police officers driving by me, some of them smoking out front. And I tried to open all four doors. So my handprints are there.
0: Jenny was trying to get someone's attention and look suspicious. Still, no one said a word to her.
5: I'm just in shock. They're not really doing anything. And if this is how they're gonna handle this high, you know, People are talking about this everywhere at the jail, you know. If this is how they're going to handle stuff, I'm really worried. I put my handprint of my right hand on each window. And as I walked around the car, I drug my left arm and hand completely across the trunk. I'm trying to make it obvious to these people. I'm messing with this car. Don't y'all care? And not one single solitary person that was an employee that I knew, even people that I knew never even acted like I was a ghost and they didn't see me.
0: Could this lack of security have given someone the opportunity to plant the blood? If so, How would they get Emma Jean Thompson's blood in the first place?
5: I will tell you this. I do know that they handpicked the first forensics team that went over that car top to bottom and there was nothing found. I have been to autopsies inside the morgue, autopsy room, the entrance is on the same side. I mean, is right there on the side of the building where they do all the post-mortem autopsies. It's in that police building.
3: Wow, well, our morgue, you just had to open the door and walk in. Uh, to put it, just how easy and accessible the morgue is to us. In those days, we were we were at the range uh, doing SWAT probably. We got to yucking it up and we went next door to the morgue and got in on the, uh, just walked in and got a hold of the uh, organ, the organ scales where they weigh the, the stuff and uh, we weighed my arms because I had such giant arms. And By the way, one weighed 47 pounds and the other one weighed 46 pounds. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, readily accessible.
5: The car was tested with forensics and found nothing. After... The autopsy was completed. They take tissue and they take multiple vials of blood and they take tissue from many parts of the body, weigh the parts of the body. They uh, draw blood from the victim to test for various and sundry things. They take hair, they take nail clip. you know, they do all that kind of thing. Whomever was in that building had access to Imogene Thompson's blood. and could have easily planted it.
0: In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean kipe and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke. And executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball. And you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening.